Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. On the early cold morning of Monday, February 14, 2000, in Shelby, North Carolina, nine-year-old Asia Degree was last seen by her father after a late-night check-in on both siblings, Asia and O'Brien. Asia's father, Harold, saw both children were sound asleep in the bedroom that they shared. On the evening before, on Sunday, February 13, it was a bad storm with freezing temperatures which may have contributed to a nearby car accident that hit a power pole and knocked the power out. It was a Monday, so in just a few hours, they would be up and getting ready for school. However, Aisha's mom, Aquila, went to wake the children to start getting ready for school at around 6.30 a.m., and she noticed that Aisha wasn't in her bed. O'Brien later reported hearing some noise from his sister, but by then, Aisha was already gone. She was nowhere in sight. Aisha was spotted a little over a mile away from her home by two key eyewitnesses. Some of her personal belongings were seemingly dropped or placed in a nearby storage shed, and there were several other odd instances that were released over a decade later relevant to her disappearance that leaves us still with over 20 years of unanswered questions and a convoluted case that is almost similar to a game of cat and mouse. It seems as if Aisha left her home on her own and ventured into the cold and wet darkness of Shelby at an odd hour on that Valentine's Day morning. But why? Who was she going to meet? Where was she going? Who eventually met up with her? And where is she today? This is the Missing Found Podcast. I'm your host, Jaden Harlow. Before we get into the case, I have a few details to share about the show. 
The Missing Found is a true crime podcast focusing mainly on unsolved missing person cases in the Black community. The cases that I cover have either gone cold, have little to no media coverage, or have gone without conclusion. You can follow the show on Instagram at The Missing Found or on Medium at The Missing Found to read our original script. I also would like to mention that we have a case suggestion form in the show notes or description box that you can complete to submit your case suggestions that are of the Black and Missing. We have a Patreon that's now available for you to become a member in our private community, or the Evidence Room, to discuss cases deeper beyond our case analyses through live discussions, ad-free episodes, gain complimentary access to our original script, early releases, and bonus content, and much more. That's exclusive for members only. The show is now available on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. I ask that you please like, share, and subscribe, and comment to share your thoughts on this case. This is case episode 9, The Disappearance of Aisha Degree. The Prey and the Predator. We can shield and protect our children with everything in us, but there can be someone in the shadow watching. In that one moment, even the slightest moment, someone can come right in and cause total transformation in your world. Oftentimes, it's usually someone closest to us. Today, we're discussing the mysterious disappearance of Asia Degree. Asia went missing in Shelby, North Carolina, after what seems to be her just leaving her home with the clothes on her back and her book bag, the same book bag that she would take with her to school every day. The year was 2000, so it was a different world than what it is today in technology and how we communicated with each other. In 2000, Shelby had a population of 20,797. There were reported sightings of her walking, but it all came to a halt. It's almost like she just fell off the face of the earth with several traces left behind. But where is she? How could a nine-year-old feel comfortable and work up the courage to go off into the night who was known to be afraid of the dark? It seems as if Aisha had conviction in her. She had a plan and she went through with it. But why? This case is a cross between grooming, ploys, staging, secrets, and possibilities. We're going to offer a fresh look at the case details, the facts, retrace Aisha's steps or her last moments on record, the new information released, witness accounts, theories, a full case breakdown of why this case is not what it seems, in my opinion. Aisha Jaquilla Degree was born on Sunday, August 5th, 1990 in North Carolina to parents Harold and Aquila Degree. She was the youngest sibling by just only 11 months to her brother, O'Brien. Aisha was said to be a smart little girl. She was in the fourth grade and attended school at Falston Elementary. She is described as being a kind, fun, happy, and sweet child who loved math and science and was often elected as student of the week. Aisha was also quite competitive. She was a basketball player for her school team, the Little Bulldogs. 
and pretty good at it too. Both she and O'Brien played on the team at Falston. Aisha was also described as being shy, scared of the dark, thunderstorms, and immensely terrified of dogs and strangers. As we go into the case, you will find that the very thing she was afraid of is what she walked into on the early morning of February 14, 2000. Aisha was such a sweetheart. She was the type of child who would make friends with the person who didn't have anyone to speak to or if she saw them alone. She was just an all-around great child who loved her family, enjoyed basketball, and did well academically. The bond Aisha shared with her brother, O'Brien, was strong. Because they were so close in age, they did a lot together. O'Brien was the most perfect big brother for Aisha. The area in which they lived, the Degrees had several family members that lived in the vicinity, making everyone close-knit. The Degree family also attended church regularly. Every Sunday at Macedonia Missionary Baptist Church, Aisha was in a Bible study ministry and always looked forward to service with her family. Harold and Aquila were both protective over their children. They had enforced rules to protect their children from predators. Aquila did not have a computer in the home due to the dangers that she heard on the news. Their television usage was monitored to filter what they consumed on TV, and the siblings were only allowed to ride their bikes and play within the set parameters of their neighborhood. And even with that, there were limitations. As stated, this was done to protect and shield their children from possible dangers, understandably. Though rules were in place, both Aisha and O'Brien had their share of independence. Both children were latchkey kids, since both parents were typically at work upon the siblings returning home from school. Latchkey kids are children who return to an empty home unsupervised due to parents being at work. As many of us know, this is common and not unheard of. It was expected of both Aisha and O'Brien to come home and lock their door. They both had shared responsibilities of letting themselves into their home doing and completing their homework, and taking care of any chores that they had before playing outside or any leisure activities. This was standard in the Degree household, and both Aisha and O'Brien had no problem with this. Aquila worked a 9-to-5 as a piano maker at Kauai American Company, and Harold worked the second ship as a dock loader at PPG. According to Sheriff Dan Crawford, on Thursday, February 10th and Friday, February 11th, Harold worked first shift, which was a typical and outside of his usual schedule. As stated, Aisha was a responsible girl. She was cautious to not allow anyone into her home without her parents' permission, including other family members. There was one time that was shared where Aisha's aunt, Patricia Briggs, Harold's sister, had knocked on their front door, and Aisha would not open the door until her mother approved. This just communicates the safety precaution and instruction that Aisha abided by from both of her parents. The final game and the loss of the season. This particular week in February, there was a three-day weekend. On Friday, February 11th, Cleveland County schools were closed. Though school was closed, Aisha's parents still had to work. Since they would be at work, Aisha and O'Brien spent the day at their aunt's home which is in the same neighborhood as the Degrees. Several of their family members lived in the community, so some of their family was in close proximity. Still, on Friday, February 11th, 
Both siblings went to their youth basketball practice at their school. The following day, Saturday, February 12th, it was their basketball game. The basketball game was held at Burns Middle School, located in Lawndale, North Carolina. Aisha was considered to be a star player on the team. She was the point guard. Her team did exceedingly well all season and haven't lost a game yet. However, on this day, her team lost because Aisha fouled out. This was a devastating loss because it was their first game that they lost all season. Aisha was competitive. She was great at her sport, and she was their star player. So naturally, this was devastating for her. Aisha and her teammates all cried together, and it really upset her. Aquila recalls her saying, the referees cheated. This loss was not an easy one, and she was visibly upset. As the night progressed, according to Harold and Aquila and her coach, she did seem to cheer up and be okay as she watched O'Brien and his team play. The Sleepover After the game, Aisha attended a slumber party at her 15-year-old cousin Katina's home. I cannot confirm if the aunt's home that she and O'Brien was at on Friday, February 11th, is the same home that she was at with her cousin. I also cannot confirm who all was present at the slumber party or who was there at the home on this night. The girls stayed up late and watched TV. It was shared that the girls watched Showtime at the Apollo and danced while pretending they were on Soul Train. The case details. On Sunday, February 13th, at around 11 a.m., the Degree family attended their church service at Macedonia Missionary Baptist Church in Waco, North Carolina, which is only a 12-minute drive from their home in Shelby. The Degree family picked up Asia from their aunt's home, and they all attended church together. O'Brien noticed that Asia was not exactly her usual joyous self. She just didn't seem happy. O'Brien had asked her what's wrong, and Aisha said that she just couldn't believe that they lost the game. She really blamed herself for the foul out and took it very hard. At around 12 p.m., the Degree family visited relatives and had lunch at an aunt's home. Later into the evening, at around 6.30 p.m., Aisha took a nap in the bedroom she shared with O'Brien. This is most likely mainly due to her not getting enough sleep the previous night at the sleepover with her cousins. At around 8.30 p.m., Aisha is awakened by a loud storm. Because of this, she goes into the den and watches TV with the rest of her family. They were watching the NBA All-Star Game. Shortly after, around 9 p.m., there was a car accident. A car had hit the power pole, which knocked out the electricity in some areas in Cleveland County, including the Degree residents. The Degree family waits it out starts lighting candles, and Harold heats up the kerosene heater. Due to it being February, it was cold in Shelby, and with the power being out, it cut off the heat. So we're now into Monday, February 14th, at around midnight. Now I've heard different accounts of what happened on Sunday night and early Monday. Harold and Aquila instructs the children to head to bed. Aquila and Harold stayed up, by 12.30 a.m., the power is restored and Aquila blows out all of the candles, but left the candle burning in the children's room. Harold stays up a little while longer to ensure the kerosene heater was cooled before going to bed. At around 2.30 a.m., Harold checks on the children 
and saw that they were sound asleep and blew out the candle and then went off to bed. Sometime afterwards, and still during the early morning, Aisha got up and went to the bathroom. O'Brien awakened by the noise of Aisha getting up. He saw her in a white nightgown with red trim and teddy bear on the front. He had said that this was around 2.30 a.m. He then drifted back off to sleep, and he mentioned that he heard some squeaking noise on Aisha's bed. Later, as he recounts, he thought it was Aisha moving around in her bed after coming back from the bathroom. This has gone on record publicly to be the last reported sound and sighting of Aisha in her home until she was sighted on the highway just about 30 minutes to an hour later. I also want to mention that the times do not add up because if Harold went to bed at 2.30 a.m. and Aisha went to the bathroom around 2.30 a.m., the times are too close to each other. I also don't know how O'Brien was able to tell that it was around 2.30 a.m., when she got up to use the bathroom, unless he looked at the clock to get the timestamp. But we also have to remember that O'Brien was asleep when the electricity came back on. Typically, when the electricity goes off, it knocks the clocks out as well. The digital clock would not have been set. You know, it's a typical for a child at 10 years old to look at a clock to track time in such a way, especially because it was said from him that he slept under the sheets. I can only assume that he knew the exact pajamas of what she was wearing because he saw her the night before versus her getting up to use the bathroom. This is a flaw in the timeline that I caught and need clarification on because it is something that we missed or something excluded from the recount. The sightings. Before I get into the sightings, I want to discuss the weather in Shelby on this early morning. It was winter, it was dark, no street lights. Rain at 0.1 inches precipitation and 45 degrees Fahrenheit. I also want to remind you that there was just a bad storm. There was lightning only a few hours earlier. It was wet outside, cold, and because of that, it was not the weather and environment that was permissible for an adult, let alone a child, to walk in. So the sightings. Sighting 1. According to the Shelby Star, a trucker, 25-year-old Jeff Roop, who worked for Sundrop Bottling Company, was driving northbound on Highway 18 at 3.45 a.m. He saw a young girl with pigtails, a white dress, white sneakers, and a book bag walking along the stretch of the road. Seeing this startled him so much that he ended up turning his 10-wheeler truck around to get a closer look at her. But the young girl never looked up at him. And I have a direct quote from Jeff. I went back, but she never did look up at me. She looked like she knew where she was going. She was walking at a pretty good pace, end quote. Jeff drives back towards her for a third time after turning his truck around again to resume his route. He notices that she veers off into the woods. It was reportedly foggy and dark. This sighting was reported being at 3.45 a.m. Sighting 2. 30 minutes later, at 4.15 a.m., Roy Blanton Sr. and his son Roy Jr. were both on a trucking run for Porter's Transport Incorporated and heading north. They saw someone walking along Highway 18. While concerned that the person may get hit, 
They alerted other truckers on the road using their CB radio to look out for the individual. I have a quote from Roy Sr. Quote, it was a small figure wearing light-colored clothing. I thought it was a woman. I couldn't tell if it was a child. I thought maybe it was a domestic violence thing where a woman left the house and was out walking. End quote. This sighting is reported at different times in the Shelby Star and on the Charlotte Observer. The Shelby Star reports the sighting as 4.15 a.m., while the Charlotte Observer reports the sighting at 4.30 a.m. Though different times, we can confirm the sighting being after the first trucker, Jeff, saw the person walking and it being on Highway 18. I want to mention that the times presented may not be the exact estimate of time because, in my opinion, they're too exact. As you will notice with several timestamps throughout my analysis, time is vital in any missing person case, and we need solid times. Instead of it being 4.17 a.m., they saw her at 4.15 a.m. Though possible, I doubt those times are 100% accurate and more like a rounded up or down time. We can strongly assume that the person walking was Asia Degree due to the identifying characteristics of her clothing, hair, and the book bag that she was carrying. However, no police were called by either trucker. I also want to mention that at no times were there any sightings or reports of someone walking with or near her. This lets us know that she was or appeared to be by herself and seemingly left her home and began the walk on Highway 18. Highway 18. The highway in Falston Road, closest to Aisha's home, isn't wooded and more so open land, making it easy to see when vehicles are approaching, even from a far distance. There are some patches of trees, but it is more so open. It starts at the South Carolina state line and travels north to Shelby. The highway then connects Shelby to the cities of Falston, Bellwood, Morgantown, and Wilkesboro. Highway 18 is a short walk from Aisha's home to Falston Road, which is on Highway 18, which is also the assumed route that Aisha took that early morning. I estimated what it would have taken her to walk from her front door to the corner of Wright Street and Falston Road to put her on Highway 18, and it is about 700 feet and would take someone three minutes if they were to walk at three miles per hour. Later into the case analysis, we will go into exactly where Asia veered off to and the findings there. Valentine's Day and the surprise party. Aquila woke up early this morning, around 5.45 a.m. At around 6.30 a.m., she was getting ready to start her day and wake Asia and O'Brien up to get ready for school. The children would typically take their baths at night, but due to the storm and the power going out, they couldn't take their baths and had to take it in the morning before school. Aquila ran the bath water for one of the siblings, assuming after one takes a bath, another child would be next to bathe. This day was different than any others. It was a special day. It was the wedding anniversary of Harold and Aquila. They married on February 14, 1988. Not only was it their anniversary, a day that is of love, longevity, and celebration, but it was also their worst nightmare. Aquila opens the door to Aisha and O'Brien's bedroom and called for O'Brien to wake up, and she quickly noticed that Aisha was not in her bed. 
O'Brien always slept under his covers. It was just how he slept. Aquila searched their home to locate Aisha. She asked O'Brien, but he said he doesn't know where she was. She woke Harold up and told him that she couldn't find Aisha. She called to her sister-in-law's house, Gladys, and she wasn't there either. And she called her mother-in-law, Joanne Jones, but Aisha wasn't there. Quickly, Aquila put on her shoes and went up and down her street to locate Aisha, screaming her name and asking if anyone had seen her. Aquila called her mother, and her mother told her to call the police. Aquila tossed her phone to Harold while he called and contacted law enforcement. It is estimated that the call to the police was at 6.39 a.m. and lasted 2 minutes and 40 seconds. At approximately 6.45 a.m., the first police officer arrived at the scene of the degree residence to obtain the details and the series of events that happened. Just 15 minutes later, what may have felt like eternity to the degrees, a sheriff shows up with more officers and calls for a canine unit. And I have a direct quote from Aquila. Quote, By seven o'clock, we had every cop in the county here. Every news reporter had shown up. Five or six local news channels were here. Local newspapers. By the time seven o'clock came, I was plastered all over the television. End quote. By 8 a.m., volunteers and law enforcement combed the area by foot and started searching for Asia. The search was massive. Several teams from neighboring towns participated in the search. By noon, a North Carolina Highway Patrol helicopter from Salisbury canvassed the area. Soon after, Jeff Roop, the first eyewitness truck driver, heard about the search and a missing child and he immediately contacted law enforcement to report his sighting from earlier that morning. By early afternoon to the late evening, interviews were conducted from store clerks along Highway 18, Aisha's friends and staff at Falston Elementary School, and the Degree family. The 911 call. The call was rather strange that Harold made. This could mean something, or it could mean nothing. Harold said, quote, I would like to report a child missing, end quote. That is not something you would say when it's your child that is missing. The verbiage used is almost like distancing yourself from the case. We heard this in a similar case regarding John Benet Ramsey, a six-year-old who was found deceased in her basement in Boulder, Colorado. The Degree family was in complete shock at this point, so this may not hold any significance. Or it could. Another odd segment in the call was when Harold said, quote, a neighbor said she went down the road and said she just seen a kid down the road, end quote. At what point did this neighbor say this to Harold? And which neighbor said this? The Degrees family lived in a duplex style home where one side is occupied and so is the other side. It appears to be one large house but it's two separate families on both sides, and one being the degrees. The homes are not too far apart, but there are some distance between them. Now, if a neighbor did see Asia, it would mean that the neighbor was up at that specific time and looking out of the window. Knowing this would help pinpoint exactly what time she ended up on the highway to corroborate with the story of the motorist who claimed to have seen her. 
If the neighbor saw her, why didn't she stop Aisha? It just doesn't make sense. Him saying it so early into the phone call with the dispatcher, after this dispatcher asked for his phone number, it just makes me believe that this is the narrative that he wanted to push or to make others believe. The dispatcher asked for the number. He gave it, then said that the neighbor saw her walking down the street. It's odd. I, I can't make much sense of it. I mean, this could be something insignificant or just to communicate the mention from the neighbor. Then, alternatively, Harold could have made that ideology up while on the 911 call with the dispatcher to create a scenario. Then, it would mean that the two truckers saw someone, but it wasn't Asia. Coincidentally, they just so happened to see someone at that hour that fit her description. I don't know what to think of this. The last element of the call that I thought was interesting was that Harold said, quote, her brother sleeps in there with her, and when he was in there, he didn't hear her when she got up, end quote. This is conflicting with the other accounts we've been hearing for years. Reports stated that O'Brien did hear Aisha get up to use the bathroom. He heard her return and heard her bed moving with what he thought was her getting back in bed. Alternatively, this could be insignificant. O'Brien was only 10, and maybe he initially told his parents that he didn't hear her get up, but as he thought back on it, he remembered the bed squeaking after Aisha returning from the bathroom. I won't hold too much over this because this element is important and makes a difference in the events, but it could just be a flaw in the recollection of series of events since he most likely was also in a panic and scared and him having time to process what he recalls. I do want to know what changed. I've also included the 911 transcript if you would like to take a look at it. We cannot confirm if this is the official transcript, but it is what we have to go off of. We can only look at the evidence and consider all possibilities based on evidence, the facts, possibilities, and probabilities. The search efforts. On February 14th, the searches continued and concluded for the night and continued the next day. Police patrol had monitored the area throughout the night. On Tuesday, February 15th, the search efforts for Asia were massive. Police had conducted a driver checkpoint in the area and in the location where the two truckers reported they saw a girl that fit Aisha's description. After the search was conducted, nothing was found. The State Bureau of Investigation and FBI both got involved with the investigation. They collected Aisha's dental records and a hair sample. Aisha's parents, family members, volunteers, cadaver dogs, rescue professionals, Helicopter and a spotter plane from the SBI was equipped with infrared equipment and heat sensors, all took part in the search. Though air and ground search efforts were strong, nothing was located. At least not yet. We will go into the turning point of Aisha's disappearance. Turner Upholstery and Aisha's Belongings Turner Upholstery is a local furniture reupholstery and design shop that is actually still in business today. While all search efforts are in full play, Riley and her daughter, Debbie, were asked by searchers to check their property for any sign of Asia or any findings that may be of Asia's. Riley and Debbie Turner had an old storage shed in their backyard 
which stored discarded furniture and a tractor. What they found in the shed was interesting. In fact, it was so interesting that it was startling because those items weren't there before. So here are the items that Riley and Debbie Turner found. A single yellow hair bow with a bear on it. A white Atlanta Olympics pencil. Green marker. Candy wrappers. And a wallet-sized photo of a young girl. On Wednesday, February 16th, the Turners show the photo of the young girl to police, and police then show the photo to Aisha's family. No members of her family recognized the girl in the photo. Because the degrees did not recognize the young girl in the photo, the Turners did not bother to inform law enforcement of the other aforementioned items and instead left them in a pile on their front porch. This makes no sense. At this time, police call off the air search but continued the 25-square-mile ground search along with volunteers. Both eyewitnesses, the truckers, were called in to show exactly where they saw the young girl walking. The area that Jeff pointed out was in the vicinity of the land owned by the Turners. While still searching, a member of the search party locates candy wrappers near the shed. When the searcher asks about the candy wrappers, that's when the Turners had showed the rest of the collection of items that they found in their shed. The items that they found were confirmed to be Aisha's. This was confirmed by her parents through law enforcement. The storage shed did not have a lock on it, so it was accessible to anyone. The area was also canvassed with cadaver dogs, but oddly, Aisha's scent was not picked up in the area. This could mean many things. It could mean that she was never in the area, heat and humidity, or simply poor training for the dogs. Cadaver dogs have a 95% accuracy rate, and they are only as good as their trainers. We know that heat and humidity have nothing to do with it because it was winter and the temperature was in the 40s, the low 40s. Many may think that the rain is what caused her scent to be eliminated, but the rain actually helps the scent. So, was Aisha ever there? Or were her items placed there? It is more than likely that she was never there or in the shed mainly because it was pitch black outside and she would not have been able to navigate such terrain in the weather. And this is something that I will elaborate on in my final thoughts. There were two sightings of someone that fit her description, including the fact that Jeff noticed a young girl with a white dress on it. The dress he was referring to was assumably her white nightgown that she had on with a teddy bear and red trim. Another alternative is that the dogs may have not been able to pick up her scent due to lack of training. The weather conditions were fine. Her items were found in the vicinity, and she was seen walking by two motorists that was reported. The ground search continued, and now they have more of a affirmed area of where Aisha last was or one of the last places she was. So search efforts continued, but vastly slowed down as time went on. New developments. 18 months later, the missing book bag in the perfect location. Law enforcement had asked Aisha's parents if they noticed anything was missing. A few things were missing. Aisha's favorite pair of jeans, a red vest, black shoes, her Tweety Bird purse, a pair of overalls, and her book bag that she would take to school. 
The missing book bag was found on August 2nd, 2001, in a wooded area south on Highway 18. The book bag was discovered by Terry Fleming, a Burke County contractor who was excavating the area for new construction. A family was building a home there and a driveway so the area had to be cleared in order to start development. While clearing the area of trees, his track hole pulled up a black bag. He recounts always seeing objects being pulled up, but this felt a little different to him. He maneuvered his machine to get a better angle of the object and saw that it was something wrapped in a black trash bag. Twice. It was double wrapped. He opened the bag and saw a black and beige book bag. He opened the book bag and looked at the contents and thought it was very strange. Terry felt something wasn't right about the bag. He saw that it had some writing in the interior. It was a name and number. The name and number said Asia Degree and a phone number. It was written in the bag, whereas if the bag were lost, it has the contact details of the owner. He wrote the information down on a piece of paper and took the note home. Though all of the items that were in the bag were not released publicly, we do have a few items that were. Clothing. Aisha's favorite pair of jeans with the red stripe. Long sleeve white nylon shirt. Black overalls with Tweety Bird. Red vest with black trim. Black and white long sleeve shirt in her basketball uniform. Other items. Lime green Tweety Bird purse, black shoes, her house key, Aisha's wallet, and three family photos. I will break down my theory as to why these items were packed and why I don't believe Aisha packed them. The bag was found less than 50 yards off the highway, 26 miles north of Shelby in Burke County, while Aisha was possibly seen 26 miles south on the same road a year and a half earlier. This was reported on August 7, 2001 from the Star News. After arriving home, Terry had shown the note he wrote with Aisha's name and the number to his wife, and she was shocked at the name. She recognized the name, Aisha Degree, being that of the missing girl from Shelby. He immediately contacted the Burke County PD about what he discovered. I scoured Reddit. Yes, I'm a Reddit reader. And I came across someone who said that they interviewed Terry Fleming. Terry could not offer many intricate details due to the chaos surrounding the new development. Reporters following him and snooping around, news outlet interviews, and the dispute between Burke and Cleveland County and who the case should be turned over to. The book bag was found in Burke County, but Aisha lived and went missing in Cleveland County. The latter had initially taken on the case. It was a back and forth between the counties because the bag was found in their jurisdiction, Burke County. Furthermore, Terry stated that the bag was not very deep, and he doesn't recall Aisha's family being present at the scene, which he found odd. Now, I don't necessarily find this odd. It was a lot going on. Perhaps they may have not wanted to end up finding their child in the woods and in that manner. We don't know, and I cannot claim that to be odd. What are the odds that in that very spot that they were clearing is the spot where this discovery is found? I also want to reiterate that the area where the book bag was found was 26 miles north. Remember, Aisha was walking south, 
but her belongings that she took from her home was seen with her in the sightings from the truckers were in the direction of northbound. 26 miles walking would be around 11 hours of walking time at a moderate pace and 14 hours and 30 minutes at a relaxed pace. 26 miles driving at 50 miles per hour would take someone 37 minutes to drive. The speed limit for Highway 18 is 55 miles per hour. This just communicates Asia most likely did not reverse her direction and go back north, nor did she walk that distance. And she definitely did not bury or place her own book bag there. If she did, I can guarantee that she would have been spotted. 11 hours at a moderate pace is a very long time. She would have eventually got exhausted, needed water, used the bathroom, food, and because of that, she would have been easily spotted at sunrise in midday, especially since it was a Monday and most people were headed to work and school and would have had to take that highway. Sheriff Crawford had confirmed that most of the contents in the book bag and the book bag itself does in fact belong to Asia, but the plastic bag does not. To be more clear, he said that 99.9% .9 of the contents in the bag belongs to Asia. This could mean that there is one item that does not belong to her or something that offsets that percentage, making it 0.1% less than 100. This new development in the case suggests to him that Asia was abducted somewhere along the road after she left home. Terry also did not share or was instructed to not share the full contents in the book bag. I can say that what he found gave him an uneasy feeling. I also want to note that there have been conflicting stories of the book bag. It was not buried to be hidden or preserved, but could have ended up buried because it was a construction site. It may have been tossed from the road. In fact, in my opinion, it would have been quite difficult to go to this location, take time and bury something, risk any evidence being left behind, or someone seeing you. When you could just drive along the highway and toss the bag out of the window, unwrap, and let nature take its course. Alternatively, the person who was responsible could have just burned the bag to get rid of the evidence, but instead they wrapped it in trash bags and disposed of it. Doing this, they had to know that the bag would eventually be found, and maybe this was the goal. I think it was. My question is, why did they wrap it instead of just throwing it out? This is why I believe we're not dealing with a random abduction, but something calculated. The contents in the book bag were all sent to the FBI laboratory in Quantico, Virginia for testing. We don't have the results of the findings of the testing as they were never made public. The green car. It is not understood if this tip was given back in 2000 the year Asia went missing, several months or years later. Someone tipped law enforcement that they recall seeing someone that fit Asia's description getting into a green car along Highway 18. The vehicle is described as an early 1970s Lincoln Mark IV, or possibly a Ford Thunderbird, dark green with rust around the wheel wells. This vehicle is considered a vehicle of interest. I also want to note that Cleveland County Sheriff Alan Norman has said that it was occupied two times. For those not in law enforcement or familiar with this terminology, it means the vehicle had two people in it. 
A vehicle can be occupied one, two, three, or four times. This just illustrates how many people are in the vehicle at that time. This lets me know that there were possibly or appeared to be two people in the vehicle that Aisha may have entered that early morning, if she even got into a vehicle, and if that was even her walking. The library book. There are two other elements in this case that I find interesting. A library book and a nightshirt. It took over 18 years to bring forth these massive details of the case that may hold some answers and still a piece of the puzzle. I'm assuming these were two of the several other pieces of content that was found in the book bag. It is not confirmed, but there are two items of interest that could possibly provide new leads in Aisha's disappearance. It is also not clear if these details were given previously and law enforcement is just now releasing them because it was overlooked or may not have been considered to be significant, or it could simply communicate the true disparity in this case since it has been so long. A book in question, a Dr. Seuss library book, McElligot's Pool, is said to not belong to Asia, but it was in her possession, most likely in her book bag. The book was traced back to her school library, Falston Elementary, but the school library records could not be traced back due to the extensive amount of time that has passed and when law enforcement made the connection. Because of the amount of time that has passed, Aisha's peers, at the time this connection was publicly made, would have been around age 27 and 28. It may be difficult to remember a book like that and its significance, but had it been brought to the public sooner, one of her peers could have had some information on that book. The Nightshirt, New Kids on the Block. There was also a nightshirt that was assumably in the book bag that Terry found or in Aisha's possession, possibly in her room. I don't have confirmation on that for either the book or the nightshirt. The nightshirt was a New Kids on the Block shirt that looked to be a children's size t-shirt style pajama shirt. New Kids on the Block is an American boy band that started in Dorchester, Massachusetts. They were active in 1984 to 1994. Their music genre was primarily pop. The actor Mark Wahlberg's brother, Donnie Wahlberg, is a founding member of the band. New Kids on the Block is credited as selling 80 million records worldwide and paved the way for other later boy bands like NSYNC and Backstreet Boys. I say all this to say, Aisha most likely was not a fan of this group or knew much, if anything, about them due to their reign lasting until the early 90s, in 94. In 1994, Aisha was only three years old. It is largely believed that this nightshirt was given to her because the degrees don't recognize it, nor have they ever seen Aisha in it. This is another element that may or may not have any significance. We have to remember that this is a nine-year-old. Kids trade items, they find things, and sometimes parents don't even know where it came from or who gave it to them. It is something to consider in the case because it may hold weight or it may not. Theories. Like with most, if not all, of the cases that we cover, there are always theories. A lot of those theories have been from the public, whereas some are plausible and sensible with some having relevancy, and some that are just improbable and doesn't seem to fit. However, 
We have to look at every detail because what do we have? And it's already been 23 years. So let's get into the theories. And there are several. Theory one, something happened inside the home. Aisha's parents, Harold and Aquila, are not suspects. I believe this is largely due to Aisha spotted twice by herself, and no other person or persons were with her. It has been said that they have been thoroughly investigated and interviewed. Though they are not suspects, I cannot confirm that they have been cleared. If something did happen in the home, it had to be something that happened previously that made Aisha want to leave. I do not think this theory is likely. Theory 2. Aisha left because she was tired of the strict rules in her household. Aisha was only nine years old. She was in the fourth grade. The parameters that were set in the degree household were not to make her and O'Brien unable to do anything, but more for their protection and safety. In 2000, the internet was still new and was vastly different than what it is today. Harold and Aquila made the executive decision to not have a computer in the home. It was all Aisha knew, so there may not have been anything to compare it to, unless she looked at her older cousin and saw the difference. When I was at that age, we didn't compare our lives or anything like that. It was all about having fun, friends, and being in the moment. Though it is different for every child, with learning and understanding Aisha's personality profile, I do not believe that to be true. At nine, you may not understand how the world works and how there are evil people out there, but this still doesn't warrant a child getting out of bed to walk into the darkness with a packed bag. So I do not think this theory is likely. Theory three, Aisha was sleepwalking. This is another theory that I quickly disputed. The thing is, Aisha has no history of sleepwalking. If she was to sleepwalk, she would have eventually came to her senses, especially in the weather conditions on that early morning. She also would have not veered off after seeing the trucker and walking off as he turned the truck around to get a better view of her. This further communicates her sense of awareness at that time, her caution to avoid strangers, and that she was cognizant of the dangers of this random person attempting to talk to her. Or in this case, most likely ask her if she was okay. The sleepwalking theory, in my opinion, is unlikely. Theory 4. The Whipping Boy Theory The Whipping Boy by Sad Fleischman is a book that Aisha's fourth grade class was reading. The book is about a story of Prince Horace, who was also called Prince Brat because of his troublesome ways, who often misbehaves on purpose in order to see his whipping boy, or servant, Jimmy, get punished. Jimmy is like the fall guy to Prince Horace's bad ways. Prince Horace runs away and Jimmy follows. They go on this adventure and encounter several obstacles and troubles, but eventually return back home. Some have theorized that Aisha was inspired by this book and went on her own journey, similar to Prince Horace and Jimmy. Now this theory is not far-fetched. I've read several books as a child and I can't remember any now, but I was inspired, but it never led me to want to leave my home to partake on the story, especially in the night. It could just be coincidental and have no merit to it. In fact, I don't think the book is coincidental. 
but perfectly timed around Aisha's disappearance or abduction. Then, if this is a case of grooming, could the abductor be someone at her school who knew Aisha was reading or read this book and used that as a catalyst to inspire the adventure? The abduction. Do you see where I'm going with this? I will dive deeper into this element. Now, I don't believe this directly correlates with the inspiration for Aisha to leave her home because of this book. I know Aisha left her home at her own will. I do, however, believe this theory is likely in a sense it was used to help the abduction and the sinister plans that the predator had for Aisha. But it is unlikely for the book to be the sole reason and inspiration for Aisha deciding to leave her home. Theory 5. Aisha was a victim of a hit and run. This is a strong theory. I've heard it many places. But just like the last theory, I refuted it. Though possible, it would be extremely difficult to clean up a hit and run scene and make sure you recover everything. And I mean everything. The area along Highway 18 was combed through ground and air search, and nothing signified an accident or a hit and run took place. There would naturally be some insignia of an accident. One being broken taillights, skid marks, possibly blood, and depending on the impact, matter, skin, articles of clothing or fibers, and contents that the person was wearing. All of this can travel several yards away from the actual scene of the hit, making it impossible for someone to fully clean up a scene and move on as if it never happened. You have to also remember there would be some damage to the vehicle, whether it was one of the truckers or a car. And this is only a mild description of a hit and run. You would also need light to actually see what you're picking up since the stretch of Highway 18 and Faustin Road did not have any street lights, coupled with fog from the weather. The theory is someone hit Asia. They took her body and hit it. This was said by a few inmates, which later turned out to be false and proved to be self-insertion into the case. Though this theory is plausible, it just isn't likely because if Asia was involved in a hit and run, there were no signs or findings to suggest that, and her scent would have been in the area. Theory 6. Asia ran into a random predator. Naturally, this theory is pretty strong. She could have met with foul play on her way to wherever she was headed because she was headed somewhere or to someone. This is really what's in question. Where was she going? Someone could have seen her and forced her in their car. I mean, it was the perfect opportunity for someone who was targeting children or even adults. It is a typical for a child to be walking in that terrain in those weather conditions, in darkness and at that hour. If a predator was to hunt for a child, it would not be outside at that hour because it is almost inconceivable to find a child with all of those conditions. Though predators don't have any downtime to look for a victim, it just doesn't make any sense. These abductions would be times when children are arriving from school, leaving for school, or outside playing. Sure, Asia was passed by two different truckers that gave a promising sighting that, in my opinion, have been confirmed through only a matching description, but there is no solid proof to say that it was actually Asia. In 2000, camera phones were not mainstream, so we can exclude that from the discussion. 
A random abduction is highly possible, but who got her out of the house? Yes, Aisha left on her own. Possibly. But who persuaded her to? Who instructed her to pack her bag? The items packed were not of the mind of a nine-year-old sheltered child. The random abduction theory makes sense. But it only makes sense if she was taken while en route to meet whomever was on the other side. This then transitions into my next theory. Theory 7. Aisha was groomed. I guess you're wondering how could she have been groomed if she had no access to a cell phone, like most children in 2000 didn't, no computer at home, and she had a very structured life with family, church, and school. School computers were checked. Nothing. This lets me know that this person was possibly someone who had consistent access to her. I do believe this theory is more than likely what occurred. My closing thoughts. This case is a convoluted one, but not so much as what we think or what the abductor wants us to think. I do believe the person involved was someone close to Aisha. I will break down everything that I can. When I first heard about this case, it was in 2012. It was 12 years that Aisha had been missing by then. And now, it's been 23 and still not much closer to finding Aisha, what happened to her, and where is she today? At least that we know of. This case is truly a game of cat and mouse. I say that because there are several small clues. I guess you can say that it's like a riddle or a game, a hide-and-seek game. None of it makes sense when you look at it on the surface. Here, you have a nine-year-old girl who comes from a seemingly loving family. She has a big brother, about almost a year older, who she adored and who adored her. She did well academically. She had structure, played basketball. She had high dreams of becoming a writer. And she still had her childlike innocence since she did not have access to the internet or certain things on TV. She had fears of the dark, storms, dogs, and was said to be a very shy girl and did not want anyone mad at her. You know, everything in that last sentence sticks out to me. The very fears that she possessed are exactly what she walked into on that morning. She also did not want anyone mad at her. This is telling because it lets me know that Aisha may have been what you would consider a people pleaser. With that, she did not like confrontation, did what she could to avoid it, and she wanted people to like her. Someone may have played upon that characteristic of Aisha's. She knew leaving her home would make her mother and father not so happy with her. She knew, from a small childlike perspective, the dangers outside of her front door. But instead, she left her home knowing it would not be pleasing to her parents. Unless she left because she was going to something that was promised for her parents. And she missed school, which would have been another factor that would have disappointed her parents. This leads me to believe that whoever is responsible was familiar with Aisha and her mom and dad. Stay with me and hear me out. Aisha left on the early morning of February 14, 2000, Valentine's Day, her parents' wedding anniversary. This was a special day for that reason alone. It doesn't seem like a coincidence that this person or persons involved had Aisha leave on their anniversary at a time when most people would be asleep. 
it seems like there was a plan set in place, some form of persuasion to keep a secret because we have to do this for your parents' special day. The articles of clothing that Aisha took with her in her book bag seemed perfectly fitting for a party or some form of celebration. Valentine's Day, her parents' wedding anniversary, the red vest and her favorite jeans with the red stripe and black, assumingly formal wear shoes. The outfits that Aisha packed were complete outfits, something that a nine-year-old may not have been able to do on their own, especially a child who has such a tight-knit routine. I can't confirm, but Aisha may not have experienced a slumber party outside of her family and only with her cousin, a family member, a supposed trusted individual who is in the same neighborhood or in close proximity, meaning the cousin lived only minutes away. I do wonder if there were any underclothes packed as well. This was not mentioned, but I do wonder because then it would explain that this would have been an overnight plan versus a change of clothes for the, air quote, surprise big celebration. The fact that Aisha packed the red vest, her favorite jeans, and black shoes that may have been formal wear shoes just lets me know that the abductor had created a false scenario to pose to Aisha to get her out of her home. If she was in on this big celebration to plan a Valentine's Day party for her parents' anniversary, it was supposed to be a secret, which is why Aisha could not share her plans, not even with O'Brien. Do you see where I'm going with this? Why else would Aisha, who loved her parents, keep something like this from them, unless it was for them? I want to also mention that her school was not planning any events or exchanging candy or cards in celebration of the holiday on Monday. This further disputes that Aisha was going to school with that outfit. However, I cannot rule out that the abductor told Aisha to meet them at her school to plan this false event. The book bag and contents inside was influenced from the mind of an adult and not a nine-year-old child, and she was instructed what to pack, and this book bag was not packed on the early morning of February 14th because she wouldn't have had time. I don't even think it was packed the night before. I can't pinpoint when the bag was packed, but even law enforcement has stated that the book bag was packed over several days. I do wonder who chose Aisha's clothes in the morning for school church, or any outing. Assuming that Aisha did not have a ton of clothes, but she did have outfits on rotation, and her mother or father did the laundry, when were these key pieces of clothing last worn? They had to be washed at some point. The outfits were carefully chosen as if someone knew Aisha's wardrobe, or at least knew how she paired her outfits. The Tweety Bird purse paired perfectly with the overalls with Tweety Bird on it, the white long sleeve t-shirt was weather appropriate and paired well to go under the red vest or under the overalls. If the clothing items were packed in her book bag, she would carry to school, then it would mean the bag was packed sometime on Thursday after school before her three-day weekend. If this book bag was an old book bag or one she didn't use, this would mean the clothes could have been packed days or a week or more before she walked out of the door. So now, we break things down a little further. The basketball uniform. We know that Saturday, February 12th, Aisha and O'Brien, along with their parents, attended their basketball games. Aisha had fouled out and was visibly upset about it. 
It was their first loss of the season, and Aisha felt that it was her fault of breaking their perfect record. As stated, she quickly got over it and was seen laughing with her coach and family. In her book bag, her basketball uniform was found there. Some have concluded that Aisha ran away from home because she was upset about losing the game. If that was the reason she was upset and ran away, she would have not packed the very thing that is the cause of her running away. It just wouldn't make sense to the mind of a nine-year-old. This also means that she wore her uniform on Saturday for her game. When was laundry done? Did her parents typically wash her uniform right after the game, or was it to be placed in her dirty clothes basket? I bring this up because there is no mention of laundry being done in any of those days, leading up to her walking out of her front door. Remember, Aisha went to her cousin's home for a slumber party after the game. They may have went home first, then left out to her cousin's home, or she left the game and went directly to her cousin's home. We have no clarification on that. Another angle would be, did Aisha unpack her bag from the slumber party? If so, what did she take over there? And what did she bring back? Did Aisha have a specific bag for basketball and a bag for the slumber party? Where is the bag that she took over her aunt's house for the slumber party? Was it the black and beige bag? This is something that needs clarification, and law enforcement may have the answer to this and have not been shared publicly. In order for her to pack her uniform, knowing she would be missing school and most likely would not need her uniform for after-school practices, tell me that someone instructed her to put her uniform in the book bag, along with the other clothing and miscellaneous items, to make it appear that she ran away and took her favorite items. Do you follow me? This also further lets me know someone who was involved, the abductor or abductors, had to have some form of contact with her starting on Friday after basketball practice, Saturday after her basketball game, or at her aunt's home, or Sunday during or after Bible study or church service. The only way this element to my theory would be partially refuted is if Aisha had multiple basketball uniforms and it was already pre-packed along with the other items. This could be possible, but it doesn't take away the fact that whoever is responsible had to have some form of contact with her in the coming days to her leaving. The Mysterious Photo of the Little Girl The photo of the little girl makes me feel the same as I did The photo of the little girl makes me feel the same today as I did in 2018 when I first heard about this new discovery. I get an eerie feeling just looking at it. The reason is because I can't say that I believe the photo is even real. Let me explain. The image is a wallet-sized photo. It looks photoshopped. It looks like the face does not fit the body. The body in the background looks old, like from an earlier time period, and the face looks more current from the 90s. The photo is of a beautiful little girl and looks to be of the same age or close age as Aisha, but it just seems falsified. I heard the same account from others, and that lets me know that I'm not just being critical, but the photo looks doctored, as if it were edited to create a different child. The neck is blurry, too, which further makes me believe the image is not of a real person, but made up to be. The face is real, the body is real, 
but the two does not appear to match. I also want to mention that no one has ever come forward to say it was their child and it surely was not anyone at the school because that was also checked. It could be a child from an entire different part of the country or even a different city, but no one has ever claimed the photo or the child, which is quite odd. An alternative theory to that is maybe the parent or family of the child may not even know their child's photo is in question. It's obvious that the photo is a school picture with the changeable backgrounds. We're all familiar with this. This could be something or it could be nothing. The question is, who is the child? Where did Aisha get the photo? If she was even in the shed that early morning to drop this photo. And where is the child? Could the child be another victim? Or is the photo of someone Aisha thought she was communicating with? like a pen pal, but really it was a predator. Law enforcement did check with the school on pen pals and nothing came of that. Alternatively, this photo could just be another red herring that was placed there to create a different outlook on the case and push the whole runaway theory. It is an odd element, but it's certainly something that has to be mentioned because it can mean all of something or all of nothing. Aisha was never in the shed. I mentioned earlier in my analysis that Aisha's scent was not picked up anywhere. It could have been a case of not-so-well-trained dogs, or she was simply not there. The conditions were cold and wet, a perfect recipe for preservation of scent when it comes to cadaver dogs. The items that were found in the shed may have actually been planted there. The walk from Aisha's home is 20 minutes to reach only the entrance of the driveway to Turner's upholstery. It may seem even longer to a nine-year-old and in the dark. Could Aisha have seen her way through the land to reach the shed with it being so dark, foggy, and rainy? The shed is there only if you know it's there. It's not visible at all from the road, as it is quite the distance from Highway 18 to reach the shed. Aisha a little girl who's afraid of dogs, darkness, and storms, go into a shed that is unbeknownst to her, rummage through her book bag, eat some candy, and drop these items. A pencil, green marker, a hair bow, candy wrappers, and this odd wallet-sized photo of a young girl. Those items are small, so naturally they would settle at the bottom of her book bag or in a smaller compartment since it seems as though she packed her bag with more larger items on top the clothing. If she was in her book bag and those items fell out, what was she getting out of the bag? She was in complete darkness. I can't imagine Aisha digging into her bag while most likely freezing, wet, and scared. Unless she was digging into her bag to put on some warmer clothes. But remember, those clothes were for the surprise celebration that may have been used to lure her out of her home. So she could not wear those clothes while on her trek. This element in the case can be either or. Either she was in her bag or she was not. If she was rummaging through her bag, a few items may have fallen out or they could just have been planted to throw things off. Then I consider the fact who would have risked going to the shed on private property that houses a residence and a business to risk being seen. Where would they have parked their car? 
A part of me feels she wasn't there because the dogs did not pick up her scent. And a part of me does. Then I talk about who would have risked being seen. Well, who would have risked luring a child out of their home with over 20 years of mystery? If that is even the case. I've even considered several other theories that align more with my thoughts and that are far from what I think happened. One theory was that Aisha did not walk anywhere and was actually driven to these random areas to be seen, which is why she wore white to be seen to further push the runaway theory. Remember, we're dealing with someone who was well-versed and calculated in this case. We have to remember that the only reason it's being said that she left her home and was walking is because of the two eyewitnesses, the truckers. If they didn't see her, if that was even her, we would not have much to go off of to know that she left on her own. Aisha could have been made to be seen. For her to walk at that pace, Jeff saw her walking and in those weather conditions, she had to be walking with direction and confidence to know there was someone or something on the other side or nearby. And someone that she trusted since she was afraid of literally everything that she walked into that early morning. With the extreme weather that night, early morning, Aisha would have not gotten that far because she was not properly dressed. Aisha weathered the storm. One thing that I have not yet delved into is Aisha's lack of apparel and dress for the around 40 degree weather. It is believed she had only her white sneakers and her nightgown or a bleached white pair of jeans, and a white shirt. This alone, in those conditions, would cause her to go into hypothermia pretty quickly. I wonder why didn't she choose to wear a coat when she had it in several? According to the Finding Asia Degree website, which aligns with my theory, Aquila is quoted saying that none of her hats, coats, or mittens were missing. It was also mentioned that she may not have had the proper hydration to take the walk in those conditions because O'Brien mentioned that she used the bathroom sometime throughout the night, which emptied her bladder and reduced the amount of water in her body. Due to her athletic figure, she may not have had enough fat stores to weather the freezing temperatures. Her body was most likely wet, clothing drenched, hair soaked, and she was freezing if she took that long walk from her home and on Highway 18 the whole time. The question that I have is, why didn't she wear proper attire that she regularly wore when she would go outside, like the previous day on February 13th when she went to church? Unless her coats and winter wear was in an area that would bring attention or make too much noise attracting attention to her leaving and interrupting the plan. The degree residence was small. Their parents' bedroom was probably only a few feet away from the children's bedroom. I wonder why Aisha did not fear her parents hearing her leave or move around. The family photos for the party display. Aisha packed family photos. The perpetrator knew Aisha loved her family, and it further pushes the narrative that this plan of execution may have been inspired by doing something for her family. A child who leaves home with a packed bag is not going to think about taking family photos. It's just not something a child would go after. This leads me to think further that someone helped her pack this bag. They may not have physically helped her, but they instructed her on what to pack. The abductor wanted to make this appear that she ran away, which is why I believe they instructed her to take the photos 
but I believe the abductor told Aisha that the photos would be used as a prop or on display since the celebration is for them. The thought of her being told to pack some family photos because you would be gone for a while would be quite disturbing for Aisha, especially with the strong bond and comfort she had with her parents and brother. This alone would have made Aisha call off the entire ordeal and not be cooperative with it. This is why I believe the abductor could not say this and had to propose it as needing photos exclusively for the celebration. A strong risk. After reviewing all of the public facts, there is another thing that sticks out, as there are several. How confident can someone be to bet on a child waking up at a specific time, take this long walk and meet you at a location without any form of alarm, watch, cell phone, or any device that can track time? Do you see what I'm saying? This is all speculation by looking at the facts of the case, but the time Aisha left was an odd hour. It was a school day. In just a few hours, she would be up and getting ready for school. How could the abductor be sure that this plan would be successful to have a child get up at almost 3 a.m. to leave her home? How could the abductor be sure that when Aisha got up and attempted to leave that her parents weren't up or up using the bathroom like she was? Which would have corrupted the entire plan, right? She didn't know a storm was coming, but the abductor did, especially if the person was planning this. From the looks of everything, if my theory is possible, they were obsessed with the details and patient. The abductor would have watched the news to learn the weather for the coming days and made sure the plan was well suited to carry out the abduction. The last contact Aisha had with someone at her school and several others was on Friday at her basketball practice and Saturday at her basketball game. Then, Later that evening, she was over her 15-year-old cousin and aunt's house. Afterwards, she attended church service. Then Aisha and her family went to a relative's house. Then eventually, she was home and the storm happened, and the power went out due to the accident. She came in contact with a lot of people and just in that weekend alone. This tells me that these plans for her to leave home were made solid and official that weekend. The plans may have been made months in advance, Confirmed that weekend, but the grooming was happening much longer than that. School was closed in Cleveland County on Friday, February 11th, so the last school day was on Thursday, February 10th, but she did have basketball practice that next day, Friday, the day school was closed. So out of those three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, someone may have reiterated or made the plans with her. We have to also remember that Aisha was nine. You can't make plans with a child at that age several days or even weeks or months in advance without you reminding them as the day gets closer unless something special or monumental was promised. Possibly like a planning of an event, which was her parents' wedding anniversary. I can only assume, trying to view this through the eyes of a bad person, it would be to remind the child to keep it a secret and don't forget to meet them at X location, on X date, and at this particular time. The meeting point could have been her school, Fawson Elementary. To get there by driving from her home, it would have taken only eight minutes. But to walk there, it would have taken an hour and a half to two hours, depending on the route. The person may not have been planning on meeting her at the school, 
but instructed Aisha to walk in that direction to pick her up along the way. Again, this is only if Aisha even walked that far distance or if she was instructed to walk to a certain point closer to her home. I still have a hard time believing or grasping the concept of an obedient and pleasing nine-year-old child from a loving home would leave and walk into the night in those conditions and with the fears that she had. Though seemingly impossible, I don't believe Aisha was running away, but running to something that was promised that would be in favor of a surprise or something special planned for someone, her parents. The abductor preyed on Aisha, knew her lifestyle, and eventually gained her trust and possibly gained the trust of her parents. This case is on the basis of manipulation. Aisha was an intelligent girl. She was sheltered, responsible, followed directions, loved school, enjoyed the company of family, loved her family, and was very close to her big brother. Whoever is responsible knew Aisha, studied her, and knew their family structure. Aisha would not have done this willingly and knowingly to make this special day for her parents into their worst nightmare. Aisha was promised something, and it was too good to ignore. Whatever she was promised from the perpetrator, it was supposed to be well worth it and sure to bring smiles. Instead, it brought pain, hurt, and confusion. This concocted story is what gained Aisha's trust and the ability for her to keep this secret. The goal of Aisha's disappearance was to make it appear she ran away, but that is far from true. I can't physically prove it, but the evidence and the staging is consistent with that. Whoever did this, they are highly skilled, organized, calculated, patient, a predator, and was hunting for a child, a specific child, Aisha Degree. This person had time, time to create a bond, a trust, and to develop a false concocted storyline to lure Aisha from her home and they chose the right day and the right circumstance. Like I said, I cannot confirm any of this, but one thing is for sure. Aisha did not leave at her own volition. Aisha may have been sensible, responsible, and all of those great things, but she still was a nine-year-old child and learning about life and had her parents to protect her. It sounds complicated, but we have to remember that this entire plan was carefully considered, planned, and executed. This is why we're here today. The person involved thought this out well. I am insinuating that someone may have been with Aisha or in her shadows. If that second sighting is actually official, then also the first sighting. Initially, she was seen with only pajamas. Then eventually, through the second sighting, it was pants and a white top. This element could be a mistake of her not being in pants and a top, and it could just been the nightgown. This is something we cannot confirm. The outfits do have one thing in common. They were described as white. Could this have been purposely to attract attention to her? Could the abductor have instructed her to wear white so that she could be visible to further push the runaway narrative and totally shifting the case, making it appear as a random abduction? A child as young as Aisha would not typically know to wear a bright color in darkness, but an adult mind would. The color of choice was no coincidence, but I believe it may have been done purposely so she could be made visible to passerbys 
and with hopes that they would report it to further push the runaway theory. This is quite risky because it is a chance a police officer would be driving that highway and has seen her. I just think that this person is well-connected. Even with my examination on what we have to work with, I still have questions. This known abductor has sent the community, law enforcement, and people like myself who analyzes cases into a game of cat and mouse. It was all staged and a ploy to make what really happened to Aisha fuzzy. It's no coincidence that the book bag was seemingly or partially buried in the opposite direction that Aisha was walking. I would not even be surprised if the abductor or those involved chose to put the book bag in that location because they knew the area was planning on being developed. I don't know when the bag was placed there and how soon after or how long after Aisha went missing. It's almost like he or she wanted the bag to be found. Just like they wanted Aisha's marker, hair bow, candy wrappers, and the wallet-sized photo found. We're dealing with someone extremely smart, well thought out, calculated, most likely knows the family, and lived or still resides in the area. A random abduction in this manner is not impossible, but it may not be likely. I say this because Aisha's items are too spread out. After all, she was seen walking on the Royal Highway alone. Again, if that was even her. This allowed for opportunity for someone to pick her up and to overtake her and force her into their vehicle, with little to no trace evidence left behind. If this was a grooming situation, this was patiently planned. A nine-year-old doesn't leave her parents and sibling that she adored in a warm bed to go outside in the dark cold and rainy weather with an extreme fear of dogs unless they were promised something on the other end and had assurance, or something happened inside of the home where she did not physically walk out. You know, I could be all wrong about my angle in this case. Aisha may not even walk out of her house that night. Maybe no one lured her out because wouldn't they fear she would tell her parents and plans fall through? Maybe the items that were left behind are just a red herring and have no significance. She may have not even been in the shed or near it. We just don't know. Honestly, I don't know what to make of it. What we do know is that there was a third party involved with her because someone wrapped the book bag. There are so many theories, and I don't always delve into them, but I had to for this case. I can't solve this case because I don't have all of the details, but I do want to educate you on it. I do ponder on the thought, what if her parents woke up and asked Aisha what she was doing? What would have been Aisha's response? Would she have told her parents the plans and possibly revealed who was she going to meet if she left out on her own? At this point, I think Cleveland County needs fresh eyes on the case and may need to consider outside sources. So much time has passed and not much has changed. We are limited to only the reports and news outlets, and law enforcement most likely has more specifics that we don't have access to. There are so many elements in the case that are questionable. The 911 phone call that Aisha's father made on the morning they saw that she was missing. Her walking out of her house into everything that she was afraid of. And we don't know much else after that. At the time of her disappearance, Aisha was nine years old, African-American, stood at 4'6", female, 
weighed 60 pounds. She had brown eyes and black hair. Aisha was last seen wearing white sneakers, a white nightshirt, white jeans, and may have been carrying a purse and or a black book bag. If you have any information or leads in the disappearance or abduction of Aisha Degree, her current whereabouts, or any information concerning Aisha, it should be directed to FBI Charlotte at 704-672-6100. You can also contact Cleveland County Sheriff's Department at 704-484-4888 or your local FBI office. The FBI is offering a reward of up to $25,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for Aisha Degree's disappearance. I want to thank you for your viewership of Aisha's case. I ask that you please share so we can all help bring Aisha home. Harold, Aquila, her big brother, O'Brien, and everyone who loves Aisha, including us, need answers. They miss Aisha. We want her home or answers on what happened on that early morning of Monday, February 14th, 2000. Days or weeks before and time after since we don't have a solid timeline of what occurred in the days leading to Aisha leaving her home and after. This will trace the exact footsteps and people that may have been in connection or in the company of Aisha. Until people start talking and for law enforcement to look at those in the inner circle, and really examine who had access to Asia in the last four days and possibly 24 hours prior to her abduction, this case will remain open, unsolved, and very cold. As always, please be safe, be vigilant, and always be aware of your surroundings. May God bless and keep you all. It was 20 years ago on Valentine's Day. The fourth grader is believed to have left home in the hours just before dawn, walking out of her Falston neighborhood near Shelby, North Carolina. Witnesses saw her walking along Highway 18 within a few miles of her home. A tipster reported she possibly got into a car. More than a year later, Aisha's backpack turned up at a construction site 30 miles away. Well, she is the type of child that would give you the shirt off her back. She never wanted anybody mad at her for anything. She wanted everybody to be uh, her friend. She wanted to everybody to be happy. After 20 years, I still believe my daughter is alive. I do not believe she's dead. And I know somebody knows something. I'm not crazy enough to think that a nine-year-old can disappear into thin air without somebody knowing something. Therefore, my dear brother and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58.
Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.